If any of you uh, need a Bible, our ushers have Bibles. Uh, just catch the eye of one of our ushers, and uh, they'll, they'll give you one of these. And uh, we invite you to take it on home with you if you need one back at home. We're going to be in John chapter 10. That's going to be page 748 in this Bible. So John chapter 10, we'll be starting at verse 22. So we can all kind of orient ourselves and get our Bibles open. Let me uh, ask a word of prayer. As I've prepared for, for this week's message, I have um, had a, a feeling of, of the weight of this passage and uh, its significance for us. And uh, I, I think that uh, the enemy of our souls would like us not to hear this. And so let's just pray that God will use this passage powerfully today. Father, we give ourselves to you. Pray that nothing would stand in the way of our hearing and responding to your word this morning. Pray that the, the, the importance, the significance of, of this passage for our time would uh, be impressed upon us, that we might be able to uh, be all the more effective in being your servants for having spent time in this portion of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I got invited to the home of uh, one of my church members uh, a number of years ago to interact with a Jehovah's Witness who had been contacting him and his wife. And uh, my friend was frustrated that no matter what he said to this Jehovah's Witness, the guy had an answer that was uh, uh, well-prepared and, and well-rehearsed. And for every passage of Scripture that my friend would take this Jehovah's Witness to, uh, he would bring out his own Bible, the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness Bible, that reads their theology into every passage that deals with who Jesus is. Let me just tell you in a nutshell what Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus before we go any further in this. First of all, they do not believe that he is God in flesh. Uh, he is, in their estimation, a created being. He is the first created being and the only being created directly by God, and he was the agency through which God created everything else that has come into being. Uh, and so he was created as a spirit being, uh, also known as the Archangel Michael. So Jesus and the Archangel Michael, in their eyes, are the same person. He became a perfect man when he uh, came to earth and was born to Mary. He received his Messiahship at the age of 30 at his baptism. And uh, he became the antidote for the first Adam, who was also created as a perfect being, but who fell. And Jesus, the second perfect being, the perfect human, uh, did not fall into sin. And so they see him as being the antidote for Adam, uh, the one who balances the scales of justice for Adam's sin. They also don't believe that he was raised physically from the dead, but rather that he was made alive in the spirit and took on materialized bodies 
in order to pull off the post-resurrection appearances. So that, in a nutshell, is Jehovah's Witness theology relative to the person of Jesus. Now, what do you say to someone like that? What do you say? Uh, have you ever tried to talk with one? Whatever you say to them, you have to know that they don't get sent out with an awful lot of preparation in how to handle arguments from people like us who use regular Bibles and not their special version of the Bible that supports their ideas about who Jesus is. Case in point, I remember taking a historical theology class when I was in college. And uh, we were looking at studying the early church. One of the heresies of the early, early church was the Arian heresy. Arius was uh, a heretic. Uh, he was really the first Jehovah's Witness, believed all the things that present-day Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus. And so uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., took up this issue of the Arian controversy and declared it a heresy. And so my professor at that point said, so if a Jehovah's Witness ever comes to your door, you can just say, well, we took care of you folks at 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And I thought, that's a great answer. I can't wait to use it. Well, I got to use it that very Christmas break when I was home. The doorbell rang, and it was a Jehovah's Witness. I said, come on in. Have a seat. And uh, I uh, thought, if I uh, could give him that answer, I might just be able to silence him, and I might just be able to witness to him. So I said, well, you know, this was dealt with at 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea. And he says, let me tell you about that council. It was deeply divided. And uh, it went along political lines, and the emperor went for this side, and, th and that's the side that won the day. And I thought... Good night, are these guys prepared? Somebody even told them about Nicaea. <laughs> well, they come well prepared. So back to my friend. I went to his house on the day when the Jehovah's Witness was going to come next, and we had a discussion. And as I expected, he had prepared answers for everything that I talked about with him, um, mostly aided by his New World Translation Bible, uh, that writes Jehovah Witness theology into all the passages that deal with who Jesus is. And today's passage in John chapter 10 is one of those passages that I offered in evidence of Jesus' deity, and I found that he had an answer prepared for that one as well. And we'll look at it in a few minutes. But one thing we need to understand is that pretty much universally, all the cults get the identity of Jesus wrong. They all have that in common. They, they get who Jesus is wrong. And as I said last week, if Jesus isn't God, he can't save us. No finite being can pay for his or her own sin, let alone the sin of everyone. There is an infinite amount of sin out there that has been committed and will be committed and only, a, and only an infinite person can take care of that sin. Only God can do it. And so if Jesus isn't God, we're stuck trying to pay off our own sin. And we can't do that. 
So today's passage in John chapter 10 centers on the deity of Jesus Christ, and it provides the answer to the objections of the cults. I'd like to focus on three main questions, and they're printed in your program if you'd like to follow along. First question, what does Jesus claim for himself? The second question, what do his opponents believe he claimed? And third question, what do the cults then say about him? So let's take a little walk through the text, John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Let me pause there for just a moment. Festival of dedication was a, a, a newer festival at this time. In 175 BC, uh, a Roman emperor named Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in every way he could think of desecrating it. And uh, a man named Judas Maccabees led a revolt against Rome and got the temple back. And so this Maccabean revolt was celebrated then from 175 onward at what has become known as the Feast of Dedication. In our time, it is known as Hanukkah. So it's around Christmas time, December of the year. So we'll pick up at verse 23. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. I, you know, just, just a word about those two first verses. I love the accuracy of our Bible. It's important to have this level of detail. John tells us when and where this took place in exact terms. Verse 24, the Jews who were there gathered around him, Jesus, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus said to them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? Uh, let me just digress for a moment. That is a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6. And Psalm 82, if you, if you look at it, in fact, I think I marked it here. Here we go. We can get to it quickly. Let me read Psalm 82 for you. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the, quote, gods. And, and gods is written in quotes there. And I believe what he's referring to is human judges who, who uh, exercise judgment over the people. And in that office, in that role, uh, they are referred to in the common uh, language as gods. I'll go on to read the rest of it. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So these judges, he is condemning them for what they're doing. 
Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The, quote, gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, quote, and here's the one Jesus quotes. I said, quote, you are gods. And that gods is in quotes again. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So uh, what he's quoting is, is a condemnation of, of these judges over the land. And what he's doing in refuting uh, the Jewish opponents is he's arguing from lesser to greater. If, if the people in the psalmist's day could refer to these judges as gods, how much more should you see uh, me as the son of God, is what he's saying there. Okay, we'll pick up again then at uh, verse 34. Uh, again, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? In other words, what about me? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So there's our text, and I'd like to just ask those three questions now as we look at it together. First question, what did Jesus claim for himself here? What did he claim for himself? There are four main claims that he makes here, any one of which is pretty staggering. Put them all together, and it's, it's really impressive. First, he claimed he gives eternal life in verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Impressive. I mean, you and I can't claim to give anybody eternal life. Jesus did. Gives them life, gives them protection. No one and snatch them out of his hand. In verse 30, he claims to be one with the Father. We will dig into that one a little bit more, but one with Father God. That's pretty impressive. Uh, verse 36, he claims to be God's son. Would you do that? Uh, verse uh, 38, he says he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. Any one of those four by itself is, is pretty staggering. But you add it all up, and it says quite a lot. These four statements that would each make you think twice about someone who might say those things. We would look at such a person and conclude this person is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are the three options that we looked at a while ago from C.S. Lewis. But then he goes beyond that. And he says, and if you don't believe me, Believe the works that I have done. So maybe, maybe those 
four things would lead you to think he's a liar or a lunatic, but then he tells you what you can do. Believe the works that he's done if you don't believe him. Follow the evidence if you're not willing to follow his testimony. So what evidence? Well, think about the works that he's done so far in the Gospel of John. The miracles that he's done so far in the Gospel of John, I've put on a slide here, in chapter 2, changed water into wine. This is a, a messianic miracle, kind of shows who he is, points to this messianic age when wine will flow like water. Uh, in chapter 4, uh, he healed the son of the official at Capernaum, uh, and it was a long-distance healing. He didn't even need to be present to heal this person. In chapter 5, he heals the invalid at the pool of Bethesda who has been there 38 years hoping for a healing and was uh, far beyond hope at this point. In uh, chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000, another messianic miracle pointing to the messianic age. In chapter 6 as well, he walks on water showing his command over all creation. And in chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. And in that passage, we're told that it had never been done before. All of those things, Jesus said, if you're not willing to take my word, look at the things that I've done. They point to who I am. Again, a major emphasis in the Gospel of John. Who is this? Next week, we're going to look at the raising of Lazarus. Uh, if there's any doubt, he can raise the dead as well. That's a pretty good portfolio, wouldn't you say? So Jesus speaks of who he is, and then he shows it through what he does. Who is he? He is God in flesh. He is God the Son, second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, our only hope beyond this life. And that's what he said about himself. But let's just suppose for a second that maybe we're mistaken. Maybe we've twisted this into what we want to believe about him. One way we can check ourselves in this is by looking at what the people he was talking to believed he was saying to them. So who did his Jewish opponents believe he claimed to be? Well, they understood that he claimed to be God. Verse 30, he said that he and the Father are one. Now, they understood that statement as blasphemy, that he was making himself out to be God. And we know that because of what they did. They picked up stones to stone him to death as a blasphemer. And they said, you have put yourself on equal footing with God. You've claimed to be God saw a similar response from them in chapter 8, verse 58. Do you remember that one where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to stone him, but he hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they consider that blasphemy? Because he was echoing uh, the words that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked God to reveal his identity and God said, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And all through the Gospel of John, we see these I am statements where Jesus, again, is making clear who he is. And so he doesn't say before Abraham was, I existed. He 
He's saying before Abraham was, I am. In other words, the I am is the one who's speaking to you now, the great I am. His opponents also understood by what he said in verse 38 that he was claiming to be God. He said there that the Father was in him and he was in the Father. And again, they tried to seize him because they saw that statement as blasphemy as well. Well, let's just suppose that maybe they misunderstood what he was saying. Maybe they just got it wrong and jumped to conclusions. What do you say to that? Well, these people really studied the Old Testament scriptures. They were theologically astute. They were well-studied, far beyond you and me. They didn't misunderstand what he said. They understood it well. It's why they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. What he was saying was perfectly clear to them. They just didn't want to hear it. So Jesus claimed to be God. His opponents understood that he was claiming to be God. So what do the cults do with all of that? Well, in short, the cults are willing to say he is the son of God, but they're unwilling to say he is God the son. They want you to believe that they are just another Christian denomination and they'll say to you, oh, of course I believe Jesus is God's son. But if you press them a little bit at that point and say, is he God the son? They'll say, no, we don't believe that he is. So don't be fooled. They stumble on who Jesus really is. And as we've seen, that's the major message in the gospel of John. Now here's where we get to the interaction between me and uh, the Jehovah's Witness at my friend's house that day. When I pointed out to him that Jesus said, he and the Father are one, he pointed me to John chapter 17 and said he was only talking about unity, the same kind of unity all believers are to have. So let's take a look at John chapter 17. You'll see some familiar words here, to be sure. Uh, starting at uh, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. Jesus uh, is praying to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He's praying for us as the believers who will come in the generations yet ahead. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Well, what do you say to that? Is Jesus just talking in John chapter 10 when he says, I and the Father are one. Is he just talking about unity of purpose with the Father? Well, I'd, I'd say a few things in response to that. I'd say our unity as believers should be patterned after the unity within the Godhead. They existed in perfect unity from eternity past. And so when we're tempted as believers toward disunity with one another, 
we should look to the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit and be brought back to the sort of unity that he wants for us. But we will never be one in being with one another. We will never be the same person as the person next to us. Uh, there's a theological word for that, and it's a you know, 25-cent word, ontological unity. We will never have ontological unity. That is unity in the essence of our being with one another. We remain separate from one another. And uh, the Trinity is, is one in essence, different from them in that regard. And we have the whole Bible to tell us that they are one in essence, just as long as you don't use the New World Translation. Another thing I would say to that as well is just look at the Jewish response to what Jesus says there. They want to stone him for blasphemy. They would not have done that if he was just appealing to a sense of unity with the Father. And then the last thing I would say about it is what Jesus said about it. If you don't believe what he's saying, just follow the evidence. Look at the things he did. I pointed out the miracles done in the first several chapters of John's gospel a couple slides ago, and there are many, many more. Follow the evidence, and you'll see who he is. Now, that day with uh, the Jehovah's Witness, I also pointed out a couple other things that the Bible says about Jesus. For instance, I said in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and the people of Lystra believe them to be the Greek gods having come down for a visit, and they start to worship. And Paul and Barnabas get them up off their knees and say, stop that. You don't worship people, you worship God alone. And in contrast to that, Jesus readily receives and welcomes worship. Matthew chapter 14, verse 33 uh, those who were in the boat, his disciples, worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Jesus receives worship. He welcomes worship. Why? Because it's appropriate. He is God in flesh. The translation that they use, the New World Translation, doesn't say that uh, uh, they worshipped him. What it says is they did obeisance to him kind of groveled in his presence. And so they, they take the most commonly used Greek word for worship in the New Testament and turn that in that instance into doing obeisance, groveling. Now, they worshiped and Jesus received worship. I mentioned also to the Jehovah's Witness that day the I am statements that run all through the Gospel of John, especially chapter 8, verse 58, that we looked at a little bit ago, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, he pointed me to their translation, and it says, before Abraham was, I have been. They twist it. Um, and so they, they make him a being who has existed before Abraham, but not God. He was being really clear at that point uh, about who he was. I am the great I am. And the Jews knew it, and they picked up stones to stone him because of it. I brought them also to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is shown to be Jesus. 
And their translation, of course, that they point to says uh, the word was a God. All of those things, they, they twist to show that Jesus is something else besides what he claimed to be and what he truly is. And without a special translation of the New Testament that reinterprets who Jesus is, they don't have a leg to stand on. If you point those things out to them, though, don't be surprised if they're not convinced. And there are two primary reasons for it. Number one is they have been trained to anticipate the responses of people who don't use their translation of the Bible, who use any other translation, uh, translations that, that get the identity of Jesus right. But the second thing that... Uh, Second reason, really, that they're not convinced is something Jesus says in verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. They're not his sheep. Those who are his sheep hear his voice and follow him. Those who aren't, don't. But the good news is that he can take people who aren't his sheep and transform them, and make them into his sheep. It's called rebirth. It's a change at the very core of our identity. So the question for all of us is, am I one of his sheep? Do I belong to him? Do I hear his voice and follow him? We need to realize there's a spiritual battle going on, and the net effect is that people are blinded to who Jesus is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, unbelievers, people who aren't his sheep, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We need to pray for people who have spiritual blinders on, that God would remove the blinders and cause even those who oppose him to become his sheep. He did that with a man named Saul of Tarsus. And as we sang earlier, he's doing it today. There's an epilogue at the end of John chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Jesus goes across the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And people there came to him, and they saw him, and they weighed the evidence, and they concluded that all that John the Baptist had said about him was true, that he was who he said he was. What did John say about him? Well, we find it in John chapter 1. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of this one who's coming. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist said, The one who comes after me surpasses me because he was before me. John the Baptist said, I saw the Spirit descend like a dove on him. And John the Baptist said, This is the Son of God. The people that came to him on the other side of the Jordan 
weighed the evidence, and concluded that he is who he says he is. It says in verse 42, many believed in him. The question is, do you? Do you believe he is who he said he is? His identity is vital to our salvation. If he's not God, he can't save. But the evidence is overwhelming, and we can trust him fully. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program on the flip side of the sermon notes. I include a few quotes from the New World Translation, the one that Jehovah's Witnesses use, so you can see, compared to whatever translation you're using, what they do to twist the Word of God to say Jesus is something other than who he is. So, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word that is accurate in such detail and that spells out so clearly who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that if anyone in here has the blinders on that Satan has put in place over the eyes of people who don't yet believe, I pray that you would take those off. Cause us to see Jesus as he truly is, the only one who can save. And let us put our trust fully in you. In Jesus' name, amen.